It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online around the world at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. We'll be discussing tribal economies and the effect the state of Maine has on those economies. Today, we will focus on the Penobscot Nation. My co-hosts are Maria Girard, director of the Penobscot Nation Cultural Center, and James Francis, Penobscot Nation historian. Our special guest for today is Chief Kirk Francis, who has been elected two times to serve as chief. Uh, he's in his fourth year. Uh, and the last time he ran, he ran unopposed. Uh, we may not, we may or may not have time for your phone calls, but we, we will really try to make time for them this, uh, during this program because we uh, would really like to hear your input on what we're talking about. Uh, first of all, I'd like to lay some background on the, uh, the economics of tribal state relations just to sort of fill you in on um, the relationship, that economic relationship that we've had with the state of Maine for so many years. Um, I'm gonna ask uh, James Francis, the uh, Penobscot Nation historian, to uh, tell us a bit about uh, once Massachusetts uh, gave Maine the permission to become a state and, uh, and, and then what happened uh, economic-wise after that. James. Well, it's, it's important to start with the relationship that the Penobscots had with Massachusetts initially before we really look at how that's translated into uh, the responsibilities that Maine took over from Massachusetts. And at the time, the tribes in Maine were wards of the state of Massachusetts initially, that the, the Massachusetts um, Bay Colony and then, uh, and then the Commonwealth of Massachusetts took responsibility to, quote-unquote, take care of the Indians. And in 1820, when Maine became a state, there were some treaty obligations that Massachusetts needed to uh, follow through with with the Native Americans in Maine. And so Massachusetts had paid the new state of Maine $30,000 in 1820 money. That's a considerable amount to um, take care of those treaty obligations. And so that kind of sets the stage for Maine taking that kind of um, paternalistic control of the tribes and um, taking care of them. Now, one of the things that Maine does right off in the first decade of their um, statehood is to start to pass these resolutions in the state legislature, giving them, the state of Maine, rights to sell, lease, and um, Native American lands. So by 1833, part of... Uh, the tribal reservation land included all the islands in the Penobscot River, which we still retain today, um, a few acres in Brewer, Maine. And something that 
has historically been called the four upper townships. These six mile by six mile squares, grids in, on the main landscape, were located where modern day Mattawamkeag is, across the river in what used to be called Woodville or Wynn, um, where modern day Millinocket is today. And just west of the township where Millinocket is, is a place called Indian Purchase. You can still see that on the map today. So those four upper townships were sold by the state uh, for $50,000. And this money You mean just, they were bought by the state? Well, they were also sold. You know, the state decided to sell the, the land on behalf of the tribes. I see, yeah. So they sold it to themselves, essentially, for $50,000. And this money just doesn't you know, show up on Indian Island, it actually goes into what the state developed as, as a trust fund to, quote-unquote, take care of the Indians. There was more money involved with than just that 30000 though, right? Was there a lease? Uh, they, they leased our forest uh, lands and our uh, stumpage and... Well, that initial $30,000 that went to the state of Maine, then the $50,000 that went from the sale of the four upper townships, and then with the logging industry, that was huge. I mean, by the mid-1800s, Bangor is considered, you know, the largest um, port cities on the East Coast because of the lumber industry, and the main conduit for that lumber is the Penobscot River. The islands on the river um, were um, boomed up, which means they... Um, they had to lease those lands to attach booms to to shuttle their logs down the river. And so there's a lot of money attached to that in the, in the form of leases. And all of that money also went into this trust fund. Right. And if I remember correctly, at some point, there was something like 230 sawmills on the Penobscot River. Yeah, and the tributaries also. Right. So that was a huge huge business and uh, lots of money came in through that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really contrary to the way, you know, people think about, you know, Native Americans Maine, in Maine and being wards of the state that somehow the this taxpayers of the state of Maine have been taken care of Maine Native Americans. And that's, um, you know, an absolute fallacy. That's not true. It's the sale of our own lands, albeit we didn't have you know, the power to sell our lands, the state took that, took that, those liberties, but it was our money, and that money was used to take care of um, those communities, those Indian communities. Right, and, and, the, and the results of that being taken care of from what we, our perspective, when I was brought up as a child, I always looked at, like, uh, we were getting handouts, we were, you know, we were welfare recipients of the state of Maine, and that really did a lot to uh, to uh, impact our how we looked at ourselves as people. Very negative uh, uh, effect. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, the um, the Penobscots and the, the Passamaquoddy get federal recognition. So in the 1970s, and so we've left state control at that point. So this, this takes place from 1820, the state control, until the 1970s, mid-1970s. And it's amazing, on the eve of federal recognition, the conditions of the reservations um, in the state were appallable, you know, applorable. They were 
They were what newspapers called in the 50s and 60s rural slums. Yeah. Um, I, I know that, uh, Maria, you have some input uh, on the 60s. We're going to try to bring you up to date so we can you know, have, have an understanding when uh, Chief Francis starts talking about our present economic conditions. So, Maria, you want to talk about the 60s, I believe. Absolutely. Um, by the 1960s, the tribes were still living under the paternalistic control of the states, which James uh, described. And in the 60s, uh, the severe poverty and the decline of available natural resources went hand in hand. James talked about um, the sawmills and, and the logging industry. They, uh, as Maine exploited those natural resources, what they were doing were depleting the way of life for um, the tribal citizens. So uh, they could no longer go and hunt in the usual fashion or gather in the usual fashion or uh, fish in the rivers. They were too clogged with logs and um, uh, debris from the, the mills. So um, the situation for the tribe was pretty bleak. And in the 60s, it was basically determined that there was nothing, um, they had nothing to lose in pursuing uh, a claim which became known as the Maine Indian Land Claims. Uh, just before the Maine Indian Land Claims um, came about in the 1970s, uh, the tribes were pretty much under the thumb of the state government, we had educated, capable people in our tribal communities who felt that they knew what was best for us, but the decisions continued to be made um, from the state government. And uh, some of those needs that were identified during the 60s was a need for uh, our own police and fire protection. Uh, the, the Indian Island at one time had their own volunteer uh, firefighters uh, prior to the 60s and when uh, the, the state's uh, Department of Health and Welfare took over oversight for for the tribes they disbanded that um, volunteer fire firefighting group and uh, distributed our equipment over to Old Town um, saying that we didn't need it and then you know shortly thereafter there was a house fire on the island where people lost lives and um, there's also situations that uh, uh, Sabayak uh, stories uh, about uh, an Indian man who you know was beaten to death in his own community and when the police were called um, they said that they didn't want to get involved so the tribes were really pushing for police and fire protection as well as um, their own housing offices and training for their own people so that they could start doing for themselves uh, what they felt was best rather than, um, you know, sitting there and being at the whim of the state government. Yeah, and uh, in, in the 70s, in, uh, I have a, a civil rights main advisory committee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights, and they did a study as to the economic conditions of the uh, tribal communities in Maine. And I'll just uh, quote a little bit here from that study. Uh, it was uh, December of 1974. We, and actually, and I will say that the results of the study uh, was an embarrassment to the state of Maine. And it actually caused the legislature to, to do something about some of these conditions. 
the Maine Advisory Committee, pursuant to its responsibility to advise the Commission about civil rights problems in this state, submits this report on federal and state services and the Maine Indian. Through its investigation and hearing, the Advisory Committee concludes that Maine Indians are being denied services provided other American Indians by various federal agencies, including the Bureau of Indian Affairs, U.S. Department of the Interior and the Indian Health Service, uh, U.S. Department of uh, Health, Education, and Welfare. The committee further concludes that Maine Indians are entitled to these services and that their continued denial constitutes invidious discrimination against Maine Indians while at the time placing a disproportionate burden on Maine taxpayers. Now that was the uh, state of things in the 1970s. Now, uh, the question is, has things changed? And at some point, I'm going to ask this uh, Maine Advisory Committee to do a, a, a second, take a second look and, and do a, an, an upgrade on this report. But uh, I'm going to uh, invite Chief Kirk Francis now to talk about uh, the present uh, economic conditions of the tribe and, um, and some of the, th the issues that he's, he's uh, faced in the, the past four years that he's been chief, uh, Chief Francis. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you very much for having me today. And on behalf of the tribe um, and our council, um, it's always a pleasure to talk about these issues. Uh, I think you talk about some, some interesting uh, subject matters in your opening there, uh, perceptions, uh, reality of what uh, tribal people lived with uh, historically and how that affects today. I think uh, perceptions are the 90% uh, root of all the, all the tension and problems that we see in, in, in uh, tribal state relations today. Um, we have still a perception out there that we're somehow uh, a welfare state, that, uh, that the state still takes care of us and that, um, and that we're somehow um, subservient to that government and nothing really could be further from the truth you know we often get asked the question um why why do you deserve this or, or why are you owed that or um why is it still our responsibility well a as you touched on in the opening i think it's important that you know we lived in a condition uh, and continue to deal with the effects of that um that wasn't created by us um you know, as you talked about, those authoritative roles were assumed by state government. And, and when those roles are assumed, um, responsibilities come with them. And as you touched on briefly here today, uh, those responsibilities were far from met. Uh, but just to put things in perspective, I think in, in 2009, the Penobscot Nation received a little over $2,000 in general assistance money from the state of Maine. And to back up to the Land Claim Settlement Act, Another thing is, while we, we gave them money and land and, uh, you know, we're, we're still hearing these complaints, while the, the bottom line was, as you well know, that the, the land claim settlement was a suit over 12 million acres of land, and um, today the Penobscot Nation has a little roughly over 200,000 acres of land. Um, all the monetary settlements of that, uh, of the act were done by the federal government. So the state of Maine really never um, 
has fully uh, engaged in reparations of what has been done to Native people over the last 200 years. So, and certainly 200 years of, of poverty and, um, and a quite poor quality of life. So, so when we talk about economics today, it's extremely important. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm in my second term as tribal chief, um, when running for chief. I recognize the importance of, um, of a sound economy within our tribe, um, opportunities for our citizens, and, uh, and elevating people. Um, you know, we often have this thing around, around tribal communities uh, called the crab in the bucket theory, and we've all heard it, you know. Um, we're more than willing to push people to the top and then, um, and then clamor around to figure out how to bring them back, you know, down to our, our level. Well, what we really need to focus on is how do we elevate everyone to those standards that are being set by those people. And uh, so that's really been the focus over the last four years, and certainly um, since self-determination and federal recognition, um, our tribe has been focused on, on trying to find long-term sustainable economic tools. And um, so when we took office, we started to evaluate a lot of things. We had a Section 17 corporation in place that was chartered in, uh, federally chartered in 2005 under the Indian Reorganization Act. So we had this corporation. Um, we went to the tribal council. We talked about what our goals and objectives would be after we evaluated our past. Sure, we've had some bumps in the road in economic development, and um, we've had our share of, uh, of not-so-great ideas that we've um, pursued and, and hit dead ends on, and, and we've made some mistakes. And so I think the important thing is, is to look at those in, in an educational way in terms of determining how you're going to go forward and learn from those. So what we said was, well, we have all these resources coming into the tribe for our programs and for delivery of services. Um, we really can't jeopardize one dollar of those of those monies. Um, as everybody's aware of at the table here, we we live in a flat-funded uh, era of of federal program funding, and that doesn't account for inflation. So we had to look at things through logic model processes and strategic planning to. Um, how are we going to uh, build our unrestricted resource um, pool? So if we're going to move towards independence and total self-sufficiency, then, then we need to build our economic base in an unrestricted way. So we, we said, well, a program that I'm very familiar with, uh, our family business was in it growing up. It was a Native 8A program. And uh, what that is is it's a... It's a program under the Small Business Administration that allows um, federal contracts to get set aside in a non-compete sole source type of way. Um, many people may be familiar with Alaska Native Corporations and, and others throughout the country that have really built a great deal of wealth um, in this program. So we said it's a way for us to utilize our status to get in a program that's not capital intensive, um, allow us to build our capabilities and to focus in that arena only and stay focused on it. We also recognized very early on that we couldn't do it alone. We had to bring in competent business partners and advisors and consultants and people to work with us and be willing to share the resources in terms of profits um, until the tribe was at a place where we felt like our capabilities were, were built to a point where we can totally do it ourselves. <clears throat> so that's a nine-year program. And we're currently 
about four months from certification. It was a long, excuse me, it was a long um, process of about two years going through the uh, SBA process, but we, um, we finally got there, and it was a lot of hard work. What made things even more difficult in the beginning was that we were not only applying for the certification, we were applying for the two-year in-business waiver, which um, in the 8A program, they like businesses to be um, functioning for two years, hitting income thresholds and, and different types of things that, um, that you have to meet to, to, to get that uh, two-year waiver. Well, we worked very hard to put that all in place with our partners, and I'm proud to say that we were certified in October um, and currently have been awarded two very significant contracts. So uh, we have folks in Texas today um, working on signing that contract, and we're very, very excited about it. Um, we also have seven or eight tribal members in um, Virginia training at Ladysmith on another contract on vehicle resets and uh, Army vehicle rehab uh, type work. Um, we have partners in Huntsville, Alabama, Corpus Christi, Texas. So we've really built our infrastructure to a point where our, our citizens are now starting to see um, the fruition of that work in terms of opportunities. I think we interviewed over 20 people uh, last week, um, currently have about 21 people working on this effort through our internship program and, and through those things I mentioned earlier. And again, it, it it's a sound, sustainable program that will focus on, on long-term opportunity for our tribe. So, so we're extremely excited about that. And, um, and again, I think it's, um, I think it's the future of, for our tribe economically. And the economics of the tribe are so very important in more ways than one, more, more than just piling up cash for services. It's, again, it's about elevating people, and it's about... Um, you know, if you're going to be truly independent in today's world, um, your economy is, is, is everything. And, and that doesn't mean that our culture and our historic preservation and our natural resources and all those things are not equally as important. But without those resources to address those issues, I think it puts you um, kind of shorthanded right from the get-go. So um, that, that kind of in a nutshell is... Um, is where we are today in terms of, um, in speaking over the last four years, uh, where we're at in uh, moving our economic plan forward. Okay. Uh, congratulations on that certification. It sounds like you've done a lot of work and accomplished a great deal. And uh, when did this? When did you start doing this uh, or, or starting the progress towards the certification? It was about uh, about two years ago. We um, we brought in some consultants and we said. We want to focus on the Native 8A program. We want to focus on things that where we minority business opportunities, disadvantaged business opportunities, and um, how do we um, how do we get in that? Even though we had some experience with individual 8A businesses, this is a tribal 8A with 2,500 beneficiaries and um, having to prove your disadvantaged status and, and and open your books in terms of land holdings and all the assets that the tribes had, uh, that the tribe had, and, and, um, and it really was long and tedious, but in the end, you know, it's, it's proven to be well worth it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned earlier Section 17, 
corporation. Would you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, so Section 17 corporations are, are federally chartered, and they're under the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934. And um, what that means is uh, that the, the corporation um, is protected federally. Uh, you're protected under your status, and, and you're chartered under under that federal relationship. So um, it's, uh, it's a tool for tribes. Uh, again, to rebuild themselves um, economically. The, as you know, the Reorganization Act touches on many areas uh, uh, to allow tribal nations to, to regain themselves and rebuild themselves, and, uh, and that's how we, we chose to structure our, our company. Is that some, is it sort of like uh, what they did in Alaska on the, the creating corporations? Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Um, they're all uh, Section 17 corporations as well. Um, you, you have... Some different statuses up there, but uh, Alaska is a little bit different in the sense that um, statutorily they they don't have to prove their disadvantaged status. They have they have some um, automatic givens um, that we have to we don't have, and we have to meet those thresholds. So Alaska, the Alaskan structure is a bit different because, as you know, the they're um, they're kind of landless tribes. They're defined by corporations, and they um, and it was all a part of the Alaskan Settlement Act, but the um, but they are structured a little bit different than we would be in the low 48. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're listening to WERU Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Our topic today is economic survival, and I'm talking to Chief Francis of the Penobscot Nation. Uh, the phone lines are open for your uh, calls. The number is one eight six 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 two five. Nine three seven eight one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Also, I, I get comments a lot about um, taxes and that sort of thing. Does the Penobscot Nation pay taxes? Well, we do. I mean, we we um, certainly we have some tax benefits under our minority status um, that. That give us tax breaks, uh, but I mean, as an organization, of course, we pay income taxes, and and um, and certainly um, do do pay certain types of taxes. But but in terms of our business entity, we we are not required to um, to pay certain types of taxes. So we get a we we and I don't have the percentage in front of me, but we do get a um, significant tax break in terms of, you know, we're HUBZone certified. We're also um, 8A certified, so there's benefits in the, both of those statuses. But uh, being a federally uh, chartered um, corporation as well, you kind of lose a lot of that tax burden as well for people that come and do business with you. It makes it very attractive. So, um, again, I don't have the breakdowns in front of me, but... Uh, Roughly, it's around a 30% break that, that we get in our business entity. Mm-hmm. Maria, did you have a comment? Yeah. I did. Um, the Culture and Historic Preservation Department has the opportunity to go out and do a lot of um, speaking engagements to various organizations and schools. And um, one of the things that I've been asked a few times in the schools are, are there any jobs uh, on Indian Island? Or what do people do for work? And I like to tell them that um, we're probably one of the larger employers north of Orono. 
I believe that the tribal administration employs close to 200 people and that all the the people who are working for tribal administration are paying state of Maine income taxes. Um, So that's money that's being generated for the state. And um, I know that there's a lot of misinformation, uh, as we talked about earlier, about uh, tribes funding and uh, some people assuming that we get, you know, a lot of money from the state, which we don't. Um, But we do contribute significantly to the state and um, the grant monies that the tribe is able to bring in. We probably bring over millions of dollars of um, grant monies into the community, which is then uh, spent in in the area, in the region, in the state of Maine, so that that's a significant contribution to the state's um, um, coffers. Well, it, that's an extremely good point. The, you know, Donna, as you well know, we've been through the battles in Augusta on on gaming issues, and and uh, we've had a thirty-year-old uh, licensed high-stakes bingo facility with seventy part-time jobs there, um, but we contribute about. Well, since since 1994, we've probably contributed close to $2 million to the greater Bangor area. Um, bus costs and hotels, restaurants, all those things have benefited from our bingo operations. So so we're very proud, as, as Maria said, we're proud of our um, contributions to our region as well. We recognize that the health of our region around our reservations where economic problems are only magnified that it's uh, it's very important that we do our part as well to to create a um, a sound environment around us as well as and that's the beauty of these um, contracting opportunities and in, in manufacturing it's a real opportunity to bring back between three and five hundred jobs over the next ten years and and um, I, I just think it's it's going to be an exciting opportunity not just for for our tribe but for for the region as well. So, um, so again, you know, the, the Penobscot tribe um, has been a contributor, has, um, has pulled its own weight, and has, um, and again, has, has tried to be a functioning um, member of, of the greater society as well. So, um, so we recognize, you know, we care about the state of Maine. I mean, we tend to hear all the bad things in the paper and, and all of that, but this is where we're from, and, you know, we're not going anywhere, and, and it's important that um, people know that we stand ready to contribute in whatever way we can. And, uh, you know, that's sometimes easier said than done when, when you get all the personalities into it and the governmental complexities and and all those things, but um, but at the end of the day, you know, we're really excited about the path we're on, and um, and I think it's going to be a benefit to the entire state. Can you uh, tell us a bit about uh, the various departments that are within the, the the community? Sure. We the Penobscot Nation, as Maria said, employs roughly around two hundred people. Um, we have nineteen departments. We we have our own judicial system, public safety, uh, our own health care facility, uh, social services, uh, family services, uh, natural resource department. Um, I, I would dare say is probably one of the best that I've ever been around in, in terms of water quality monitoring, air quality monitoring, forestry practices. Um, you know, we, we do cut wood on our lands, but it's in a sustained yield type of way. Um, something that's very much in line with only taking what we need um, and, and that philosophy in our culture. And so I think uh, 
when you look at our system, it's very complex. It, it can handle every aspect of a fully functioning sovereign government, and um, and it can, you know, a tribal citizen, no matter what um, problem they're facing or what their needs may be, they can get that addressed right from their own government, and then that's very exciting. We recently added um, two more departments in the last couple of years, um, uh, Department of Child Support Enforcement and Recovery, and also um, uh, violence against women and uh, sexual assault department, which is extremely important. You know, people tend to look at our government as, as um, you know, some kind of a social club, and <laughs> and the uh, yeah. the uh, the reality of it is, is we have all the pressures and needs and wants of from our citizens and, and demands. Quite frankly, that that uh, they deserve and uh, they deserve to get those opportunities and those problems solved by their own government and and you know so we're under those same pressures and and we're faced with with everything every other um, government is faced with in terms of um, social needs and cultural needs and environmental needs and all those things so I, I think um, the, the point really here is is that um, it's complex, it's a lot of work, and the one thing I will say about everything I've talked about is, and the thing that continues to amaze me is the core competencies of our human resource. Uh, we have some amazing people, and uh, we creative people that have worked in a system that is trying and, uh, and challenging, and... Uh, and I would match up our staff and our, our directorship against anyone in that subject matter. And, and I've said that all along, and I, and I believe that. Uh, we have a caller on the line. Could you tell us uh, wh what, what your first name is and where you're from? Hi, my name's Jesse. I was uh, listening. I had a question about um, the, uh, the idea of voting. Uh, on the, the casino type stuff, related issues, and I didn't understand why uh, I should vote on that issue. To me, I to me it seems like if you wanted to build one, then you should be able to. I don't I don't see why I should be able to deny you that. But um, then I was also listening to the context of of the the scenario where the the state and federal government is involved, and so in that sense, I could sort of see why people think they should vote on it in some way, but, um, and so I guess in that context, I was just curious, uh, not so much the casino part, but uh, what sovereign status means in that context, um, how you describe the relationship uh, that you have with the you know, your, your own sovereign government and the other government that uh, you live amongst, sort of, or within. Uh, if, you could, if you could talk about that a little bit. Okay, I'll let Chief Francis answer that question. Well, first of all, good morning. Thanks for calling in your interest. Um, I, I think that you raise, raise a good question. The, first of all, our definition of our relationship with the state of Maine is on a government-to-government -government basis. Um, we have a government-to-government -government relationship with the federal government, and tribal sovereignty uh, is recognized in the United States Constitution. It's not granted or says it can be taken away or or piecemealed. It, it, 
it's there and it's recognized and, and our sovereignty is inherent. It's inherent in, in the fact that we've always been here. And um, so it's sovereignty by fact. And, and on the casino issue, you raise, you raise another good point. I think we certainly share your view that any economic development within tribal territories is an internal tribal matter and um, should be treated as such. And it should be up to tribal leadership and, and our general membership to, to determine the future path we go in that area. Um, unfortunately, as we talked about earlier, you know, with the, um, with the state of Maine assuming a parental role in, in native life for, for a long time, um, it's created a, uh, a situation where there is still very much a mindset that uh, the tribes are somehow political subdivisions of the state, that um, there is still this uh, parental control, and that the state um, deserves say in everything that the tribes do. Well, you know, that, as you probably well know, that's a very contentious issue, but uh, at the end of the day, the important thing to know is, is that... Um, and, you know, the president has recently affirmed this, that, you know, this is a nation-to-nation -nation re relationship between tribal nations and the federal government. And the state of Maine needs to recognize that, well, I agree that we need to sit down and talk and, and we need to um, make sure that everybody's concerns are, are discussed. I mean, nobody's ever objected to that. I think the problem is, is sitting down at a table where you have no say and and having it dictated to you how it's going to be and and uh, so there really um, has been a lack of a process to to find common ground on issues and um, to allow the tribes to operate within their sovereign governmental status and and um, and when when the tribes do act that way um, and move forward uh, despite objections you know typically those issues end up in in state courts and and become even more contentious issues. So really it's just about, you know, the tribes being able to make their own decisions in, with, in the best interest of their citizens with their cultural values and, and everything that, that goes into a tribal decision-making process intact and, um, and then putting the product out that, that, the, that the tribes want. And unfortunately, um, there has been a ton of interference in that. Okay, I hope we've answered your question, and uh, thank you for your call. Um, you know, when we were talking about the, uh, the community and the various departments that are within the community, I remember a few years ago that uh, we uh, took through a bunch of uh, state legislators and uh, visited various departments. And one of those departments that uh, really, I think, impressed us was the uh, a GIS. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to tell us just a little bit about that department? Sure. Um, and that falls within our natural resource department as well, and it's um, uh, GIS mapping. And what we do is there is, is keep, you know, sophisticated records on, on our lands. Uh, certainly um, folks come in and want different... Um, photographs or maps of, of different parcels of lands for whatever the reason may be, uh, we can do all that right on site. Um, and it's, it's a nice compliment to everything we do in the land management arena, but uh, it's been a valuable, valuable program for us. And, and like everything else, it's, 
it's one of those departments that seems year after year we're struggling to keep it around and and all of that but we've been able to persevere on that and and we have a great um you know bink wang is a is a, is a has a lot of knowledge and does a great job in in that department and and um and it's real been a real benefit for us on the land management side as well also um one of the other things that i think was uh, that has impressed uh me over the years is the fact that uh, we have a great um, land use uh, set of ordinances, I think, that is probably more uh, comprehensive and more thorough than, uh, than even what the state has. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, and, you know, we're, that is becoming more and more um, identifiable with, with recent development. Um, besides the things I talked about, we're very, very active in the alternative energy arena as well. Uh, we have one project ready for permitting, and this issue comes up a lot. Who's going to do the permitting? And that's where we're stuck right now. Um, we're stuck with the state demanding that they have permitting authority uh, within tribal territories on wind farms. Um, we're saying they don't. We've tried to work through MOUs, um, but and through that whole process, we've we've really highlighted the land use comprehensive plan and the um, land management plan, you know, and it's always things, you know, we've certainly never permitted a development project of that size before. Um, so our goal was to work with the state on this. We, we said, let's sit down, let's do an MOU, um, recognize that we have our own ordinances, our own laws, um, that you're right, are in many cases are, are strict, are more strict than, than the LERC regulations. So we um, sat down, you know, and there's a lot of back and forth, and at the end of the day, um, really couldn't get uh, the Attorney General comfortable with, um, with allowing a, an independent permitting process, as they called it. Um, so basically, at the end of the day, we were told, well, you guys can go do your permitting process, but we're going to do ours. And it, it just sounded to me like we were getting away from the spirit of what we sat down to talk about. So, so you're right. The tribe has, has done a lot of work in terms of um, putting this together. And, and I'm sure that as we go through a permitting process and we look through our plan, there will be things that need to be changed. But at the end of the day, it, um, it really takes into account our our cultural values about the land and and there are some things that are considered in there that um, probably wouldn't be considered anywhere else. Yeah. It seems like there's been a, a, a sort of a history, not very good one, between the Attorney General's office and the, and the tribe. I, and it almost seems like sometimes when the legislature approves something and even the, the governor is willing to go along with certain things that the Attorney General uh, kind of goes against it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that, that, that it really has been kind of the problem. It's, it's the career people in those offices that have been through all the battles, you know, that have been through, were around during the land claims. They have been around during the Nifty's fight. They have been around during a lot of things. And, and, you know, unfortunately, everybody's in the mindset of worrying about the next court case. So, you know, giving up a little bit of um, authority or, or um, whether it's perceived authority or you really have it, given any of that up on both sides, I think, has become um, very hard to do because of the distrust that exists. And, and so I think, you know, at the staff level, 
I think people work seamlessly together. You know, I think, you know, common people, they come together and they develop an understanding and friendships and they do well. But at the policy level, it, it is very, very difficult to talk project-specific things or or issue-specific things when we're always worried about the next legal ramification of, of how that's all going to come down. And, and it just tells you the mindset we're in about how we're dealing with each other. And, and until we can get back to um, two governments that, that respect each other, that sit down on that government-to-government basis and find common ground products that we're all comfortable with, um, in a respectful way, I think uh, I think we're going to be mired in this problem for a long time. Well, I, I also think that uh, that there has been situations um, where there's been MOUs, and you know maybe those can be used as a model for future. Uh, and one of them is the um, I believe it's an MOU between the uh, the, the state and the Holton Band with their uh, child welfare. Mm-hmm. with the court system, and it took them, well, almost two years to sit down and iron things out and get an agreement, but they did it, you know, and it's possible, and I, and I, and you probably will agree that I think uh, we can also do it in this situation, um, and I also think the, uh, the, um, oh, what's the, uh, the, the, the program that uh, John Banks and, uh, it's the power, the dam, and oh, the uh, river restoration. Yes, the yeah. river restoration program. That's another one where mm-hmm. everybody got together and sort of uh, ironed out their differences and and just worked together to get this done because it was so important. Mm-hmm. No, that that really the restoration project has been the model for collaboration. Yeah, um, we received the uh, Department of Interior's um, Cooperative Agreement Award. Um, and w- myself and John Banks went to D.C. and accepted that award. And um, so that, that really has been the model of how people can come together, not just one or two entities either, a lot of entities, many different uh, agendas, but they, they found a way to make it work. And we have some examples right within our own system um, in the water quality monitoring um, in the game warden program really um, – highlight that to me. We've had a mutual aid agreement with the state warden service, um, working seamlessly with our wardens on many of our lands. As you know, they're not contiguous. They, they, um, they're surrounded by state lands and that cooperation and, um, communication is important, um, without encroaching or infringing on, on the rights of, of each other. So, um, and the water quality monitoring program is the largest collector of water quality sampling in the Penobscot River. And we, and that is an agreement with the Department of Environmental Protection and the tribe. And that's been in place for a long time and, uh, and does very well. And like I said, I don't think anybody else, certainly in, in our 75 miles of the river, is, is testing as, uh, as much as we are there. We've become the voice of record in, in, ter- in, the, in those terms in the river. Mm. Uh, we have a caller. Could you uh, give us your first name and uh, um, where are you calling from? Good morning. This is Tim O in Brooklyn. I was you piqued my interest um, about the, the the wind farms and the the, um, the licensing or the the permitting for that. Now, are the differences something that's just really basically philosophical, or is this something to do with what's like who's actually going to 
reap the, the benefits of it because it seems like like wind is a really nice source of income that's going to last and last and and they're they're you know unlike the casinos which some people have you know concerns about about the morality or crime or anything that 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 there really isn't any issue there and it's a good long-term investment now listen i'll hang up and listen okay thank you francis well i think the um i think it all boils down to uh control and and at the end of the day the state of maine is not willing to say that they don't have jurisdiction over tribal territories uh reservation status lands it's crystal clear um you know, we have no lurk authority and uh, we do our own land management and land development and those things on reservation lands, but on, on tribal trust lands, um, in, in those Indian territories, those, the state, uh, deems themselves as the appropriate, um, authority over these types of permits. Um, there are some things written in statute about permitting fees and where those go and, and, uh, and they claim that those laws apply uh, uniformly throughout Maine. So um, obviously that is a dispute that has not been to court. It has not been decided on. The Maine Indian Tribal State Commission has ruled twice now on LURC jurisdiction that it does not apply in Indian Territory. Um, however, um, everybody still has that stance that, that it does. And, um, you know, we'll continue to fight that battle. But, but again, you're, you're absolutely right. If, if, if we can't um, develop uh, alternative energy projects on our lands without interference, I, I doubt there's, there's much out there that we can. And, um, you know, with the casinos, they, the argument, uh, even though I think it's a half-hearted argument sometimes, but, but I think, you know, you're right. Some people really have morality issues with, with casinos and, and have um, different issues with casinos. And that brings with it a great deal of uh, controversy and and debate. But but a wind farm, I I'm just not sure what the downside to that is. And um, and certainly, as I said before, according to our own land use plan, we're um, going to be more cautious with things like um, you know bird and bat studies, which are typically all the permitting studies are are farmed out anyway. If the state of Maine does it. You know, they hire a company to do it, which is exactly what we would do. And um, and so the um, the bottom line here is is that um, it really boils down to uh, nobody wanting to relinquish control, in my opinion. Maria, do you have a comment on anything or some thoughts? Or? Well, uh, a ways back when, when we mentioned the Penobscot River Restoration Project, uh, that really is a precedent-setting collaboration between the, the tribal government, the state government, federal government, and I think about eight NGOs. And it's a good example of, of what can happen when we all come together, um, when we reach our common ground and come together and work together. I've had some visitors from other tribal communities who have come to visit me in Maine, and just in swapping stories and histories, when they discover the relationship that we have with the state of Maine, they're actually shocked. And, um, and I'm shocked to learn that it's not like this all across the country, that, Maine, that the Maine Indians really do have a unique relationship with their state government than the other tribes do. And um, the Choctaw and Mississippi are a good example of 
some amazing uh, economic development and collaborations that can happen that can really turn a poor uh, rural area in Mississippi into a, a booming uh, town. And I think there's actually a book that's written about the Choctaw economic development, um, and I can't remember the name of it, but um, it's a good example of, of what we can do if we worked together. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you look at the, uh, the way that uh, other states are working cooperatively with the tribes, mm -hmm. like uh, New Mexico and Arizona, it's huge. Mm -hmm. You know, just in the, the different, for instance, my interest is the, the tourism um, area. When you look at, uh, at uh, New Mexico, huge uh, influx of tourism to the Native American niche out there, and it's probably close to a $6 billion a year industry. And they and, all benefit. Right. And in Maine, we've got nothing. We're, ju we're just so worried about controlling, and uh, we're just not getting along. We're not working things out. We're not cooperating. And we're not including, the state's not including us in their economic plans which I think is really uh, an oversight mm -hmm. that's hurting them. Well, you're exactly right. And, and I was going to um, say that there are just so many triggers that can be pulled in ecotourism and in, um, you know, certainly manufacturing and contracting. And, and, you know, if we could find a way to work through our differences. And um, I, I think, as you said, it, it's very short-sighted to say, well, we're not going to get into that arena, you know, we're not going to um, broach that issue um, because there are so many opportunities that Maine could be benefiting from uh, within the Native communities, and and it, it's just really unfortunate because um, because we spend a lot of time fighting these issues, and and to me it's it's a lot of nonsense, but at the end of the day, you know, it's going to take a lot of um, education, and we're willing to do our part. We're, we're out there. We're, we're talking to folks. We're doing all we can to make them understand. You know, this relationship is really in its infancy, if you look at the big picture. Um, you know, the right to vote comes in the late 60s. Um, you know, that, that's really, um, you know, that's Mississippi-type stuff, and that's going on right in Maine in the 1960s. And uh, so when you're talking... You know, thirty something years later, forty years later, um, it's it's easy to see why that that mindset and mentality is still here. But um, I'm proud to say that we're trying to be the better people, and we're trying to um, educate. We're trying to do all we can, and I'm very, very confident that through these economic things we're talking about today, through the very capable and competent people we have working within our within our tribal nations that um, we're going to continue to grow and we'll continue to do our part. And um, if you look all across the country right now with the economy, with the state of the environment, you know, everything from climate change to pollution to, you know, everybody's looking to a sustainable lifestyle now to fix that. And there's no greater experts in this country, certainly, than, than the Native communities. And, and uh, so I think the tribes in my opinion, are going to be looked to more and more going forward for solutions, and, and they should be because we have them, and they're right in these little communities right here in the state of Maine. And, and I'm really proud um, to be where I am, to do what I do, and to um, fight these issues every day because I, at the end of the day, I think it's better for everyone in Maine. Um, 
we probably get, I'm going to give each of you a, a minute or so to uh, speak up about some last thoughts you might have. And uh, Maria, I'll let you go. Last thoughts. Um, as a tribal citizen and somebody who uh, is working for tribal government, I'd like to say that I'm very proud of where we are as a tribal government. I think we're doing an outstanding job, you know, in this uh, day and age when there's all kinds of cuts happening and budget crises happening. I think that we're in really good shape. James? Well, I'd like to just kind of um, agree with Maria, and it, and it amazes me that as you walk around the kind of tribal campus and the infrastructure of our tribe, this has all been since we've got federal recognition and been on our own. This is of our doing, and it makes me really proud. But it's also situated in a place in the community where to get there, you still have to go through the ancient village. And that's something that we always have to keep in mind that is our heritage and our culture as we move forward um, on these um, modern ventures. Chief Francis? Well, I just, I, you know, I certainly agree that our government is great, you know, being the chief there, I guess uh, it's a little self-serving comment. But I, I do think that um, I will say that with everything I've talked about here, it's important that I recognize and people know that I recognize that I can't do those things alone. Um, I don't think you could keep any politician or any leader of a, uh, of a government can can look anybody in the face and say, I did this. Um, it's your ability to bring people together, your ability to um, utilize the talents you have, and we have many. And um, I'm, we have over 125 people in higher education this year. Um, that number, I mean, everybody in, people say, often say, well, you hire mostly tribal citizens there. And, and it's not simply because they're tribal citizens, because they're qualified. And, and we have some of the most educated people I've ever been around and uh, I'm just proud to work with them daily and and uh, our government it's no mistake or coincidence that that we're in a place we're at um, it is the work of those people that have gotten us there and long after I'm gone that same spirit will be in that community and uh, I think the future is very bright for Penobscot Nation. Well thank you and I, I really I think you've done one heck of a job in your in your tenure as chief I appreciate and we it. appreciate your leadership. Um, thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his new CD, Dreamwalk. I want to thank my co-hosts, Maria Gerard and James Francis, and our special guest, Chief Kirk Francis of the Penobscot Nation, and our engineer, Amy Brown. Please join us next month for another Wabanaki Windows. Voices, 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 voices. voices. voices.